Hi, and welcome to Dwelling, a podcast that explores how people find and fight for feelings of home. My name is Marnie, and this week we're taking to the waterways, speaking to the people who find their home afloat, to the boat dwellers. When you think of home, what do you think of? It's very in the city that you turn onto a little gravel path leading to the moorings and you noticeably drop into a more natural space. And then, yeah, again, depending on the time of year, you have different bird life, which is really obvious. Like Sometimes you can hear the kingfisher, sometimes the kind of noisy mating ducks, uh, the reed warblers. Um, yeah, quite a lot of bird song when you're down on the river and a lot of the noise of the city tends to drop away. Although that also comes back as well. Some people randomly fighting in the flats opposite or uh, people letting the fireworks. <laughs> For me, home is a battered 48-foot narrowboat called Eddie. The backdrop of Eddie changes and shifts. It's a forest, a muddy towpath, a cow field, a skyscraper with the chatter of people passing by. But when I walk in, it is a consistent cocoon of warmth greeted by the sight of our cosy bed piled high with blankets and the kitchen we built from nothing. Sometimes when I'm on Eddie, it feels like I've stepped back in time. And maybe that's no surprise. Living on boats and taking to the rivers and canals to find home is a practice that is hundreds of years old. And it was made, it was made by people with, with shovels. It was, real, it was real muscle power that made those it wasn't just dug out with a, with a machine. It was a brilliant piece of design. They were so clever. They really were. But now, the number of people living aboard exceeds the number during the industrial heyday of canals. And the demographics are shifting towards younger people. People who 20 years ago might have chosen to stay on solid ground. But what is driving people to the water? And what does it mean for the rivers and canals they choose to call home? I think this is the only place I've lived, especially in London, where I've actually felt excited to come home. <laughs> um, because in like even though I've like lived with friends or I've lived with like my partner, it's always been a bit like of a compromise. This is like the first place I feel like um, it's actually yeah. Maddie is one of those people who makes you feel immediately at ease. Um, She's warm and is glowing with pride as she takes me around the boat. We exchange stories of renovation, being woken at night by rogue birds and sleeping through the cold. So it's been a year and a half, yeah, coming up to two years. Um, and it's actually gone so fast. Um, I would have thought it would have taken a bit more getting used to, but it immediately feels like... This is Olwen. She is 40 foot long, uh, six foot wide, and just six foot tall. But if it was any shorter, I don't think we could live in it. But me and my at the time boyfriend, uh, now husband, were living in Shepherd's Bush in a flat. And we want to be honest about all of our housing situations because so this was a flat that his parents owned, but that we paid rent for, um, and we were in there. Uh, during the pandemic and just before our other housemate had moved out so it was just the two of us in this three bedroom flat which obviously we couldn't 
sustain paying the rent for all three rooms when there's just two of us. And then we needed to move somewhere else. And just looking around London for somewhere that two people can live, and we, just, we looked at two or three flats and they were unbelievably depressing. And, you know, it would cost a thousand pounds each minimum, everything all in one room, and then tiny bedroom, you can hardly fit a bed in, bathroom. And both of us have got pretty, you know, we're in our late 20s, we've got pretty good jobs, we're really lucky. And we just thought this is unacceptable, like, it's too depressing. Matt had known about someone else who lived in this area, and so he just looked on Apollo Duck, which is where you can um, find boats to buy. And we found this one, which was um, completely empty, middle of a renovation project that had gone wrong because the couple that had bought it had broken up. Um, they both still live here, actually, at one end of the river. <laughs> We're friends with both of them. Um, and so we thought we could make it work. I think Maddie's experience uh, resonates with a lot of first-time voters, or actually anyone who's looked at alternative um, forms of housing. <laughs> so It doesn't feel like an unreasonable ask to actually like the place you're living. But this does not come without tensions. In 2019, The Guardian ran a series entitled The Canal Revolution, investigating how waterways have changed our cities. Boaters spoke about the abuse they were facing, having stones thrown at them, being called racial slurs. Part of this is because boating has become one of the only cheap ways to live in central London, and there's a huge economic disparity between permanent residents and those floating through. In Paddington, boats are as cheap as £8,000, and flats easily reach a million. But canals are not exempt from increasing prices and gentrification. As the housing crisis worsens, more and more young people are trying out alternatives, and this has increased demand and increased prices. Young people like me and Maddie. It is actually embarrassing because I, I know what we look like. I know that we look, we are two middle-class white people who have parents in stable homes and could probably live in a small flat like I just described and it would be fine. It's such a cliche, it's such a hipster cliche to live on a boat, but also that's what it looks like from the outside and actually, I don't know, um, it is a more, more peaceful, like it is an authentic, I feel like it's an authentic thing even though I know that we fit into that trope of those sorts of couples that do that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, as someone who also fits into that stereotype, yeah. uh, I, I completely agree. But also, like, at the time when we were looking at buying a boat, it it literally felt like we were running out of options, of, mm -hmm. of ways to live. Um, because it was renting extremely expensive housing that meant that we would never be able to afford anything of our own. Yeah, um, yeah, it is a, it is a conflict, because you, you believe... I know I'm lucky and I know I've got a good job, but I, you're right, I, there were no options. There literally were no options. We were going to have to live somewhere and that money wouldn't be, at the moment our money's going into the boat, which we can sell, but all of our income would be going into a landlord's pocket. And yeah, so even though it does look like a cliche, it actually is like an authentic and slightly desperate choice because we didn't have anywhere else to go and this one single boat that we could afford existed so that's where we live like it it feels I actually have this image in my mind of like a climbing wall and like just to get 
a tiny bit more security, you're like digging your nails into the wall and hoisting yourself up. And then as soon as you've got there, like your muscles are getting tired and you think, I don't know if I can sustain this. I share Maddie's feelings. On the one hand, there are layers of privilege that have led to me living on a boat. I'm a podcast producer who lives on a boat, like I'm obviously part of some sort of stereotype. But on the other hand, I was totally and completely desperate. It's the factor that's often behind more noble goals, such as better community or more environmentally friendly forms of living. We've seen over and over and over again that the housing system in the UK doesn't work. It isn't working. At best, it's stressful, and at worst, it's lethal. We all have stories of mould, landlords rinsing every penny out of your deposit, staying in jobs we hate to afford extortionate rent. So if there's an option for housing that means you could move to a job that you love that pays less, or be able to eat out with your friends a few times a month, or just simply be excited to come home, it finally feels like you have a choice. Even though living on a boat is often driven by necessity, there's an incredible sense of community amongst boaters, a kinship. It's always been something that fascinated me, the idea that suddenly you're on water so you can say hello to your neighbours or invite them in for tea. And what do you think has built up this community? Because like you said, there's so many places in London where people live as close together mm -hmm. as people on boats yeah. and there's not that sort of sense of community. But the most obvious thing that occurs to me is um, you, like you do need each other. It's always like, does anyone know how to fix this? Does anyone have this you know, piece of equipment? Um, if it rains a lot, sometimes the boat's ropes all need loosening because you get tilted at an angle. Um, and if people are away, like you look out for each other. Or if anyone, you know, even if it's like, has anyone got a lemon or an onion or something? And there's also this shared awareness that we've all chosen to live in a slightly different way, like in a low impact way. Um, and I guess that's just like a kind of unspoken thing that we're all aware of. Yeah, I think the thing that I found when me and my partner moved onto a boat, we move around um, continuous cruising, was just like you suddenly have this assumed shared experience. Mm -hmm. Just because everyone has everyone has toilet stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And everyone has stories of when they've run out of water and boats leaking or whatever. Yeah, but it's stupid, isn't it? Because ev everyone does have shared experience anyway. Like. There's no reason why, oh, the fact that we're all a bit cold, you know, in the first few weeks of autumn or whatever. Like, why are we able to talk about that here and not um, be able to talk about that in the flats that I've lived in? I don't know. It's also, for some reason, it just seems embarrassing, like, to be keen and to want to get to know your neighbours. In a, But here you've already kind of leapfrogged that embarrassment because you're already saying look, I, I've chosen how to live. I've chosen that I want to live, you know, in this small, cold space full of spiders <laughs> because I'm closer to nature and all of our electricity comes from the sun and you, you basically have chosen to join a community and therefore it's actually embarrassing if you don't contribute. Whereas it's the other way if you're in a block of flats and you knock on the door and say, oh, hello, thought we'd get to know you, we're your new neighbours. I don't know why the cringe is kind of reversed, but... That's, As yeah, we spoke about the community, like. Maddie mentioned something called the safety yeah, zones and boaters who'd been mooring in protest. The safety zones restrict where boaters can moor along the River Lee. Um, 
Tensions between the rowing club, the Canals and Rivers Trust and boaters had risen to a point where a rower had used an angle grinder to remove safety bars from the riverbank to stop boaters mooring. There are too many boats, there are so many boats and we can't sustain the amount of growth that there is, I don't think. But it's not about, I don't know how you determine between people who, for whom this is a way of life and people who are just kind of, I don't know, doing it for fun. <laughs> it's really hard. Like, I don't know, we're looking, looking across at a boat there that must be worth like 150,000 pounds and was built new. Um, and in comparison, there's that little boat at the end. And it's the, the rules basically affect the people who are nomadic travellers who've lived this way of life for ages, the same way as it affects people with loads of spare money to you know, build a fun boat for Instagram. <laughs> and I don't know how you can dif differentiate between people for whom this is a way of life and people who have other options. But today, I just, it feels like they're on the side of, um, well, I'm not on the side of boaters, basically. <laughs> I was eager to find out more, so I contacted the National Barges Travellers Association, who had arranged a flotilla protest to stop the restrictions. They put me in touch with Colin, and on one of the last hot days of summer, I cycled my bike Delilah out to a green and noisy section of the Islington Canal. Colin is a considered speaker. His demeanour is quietly assured, and as I clamber onto the front of his boat, he bustles about making tea. He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to canals and boats. In fact, a few weeks after we spoke, he sent me a detailed and instructive email on how to fix a leaky stern gland as I panicked that my boat was sinking. The boat was fine, um, but as far as I'm concerned, Colin is a wizard. So I guess the really important thing about how this impacts, if they remove all these moorings, is this area on the lee is a key area for lots of boaters with specific requirements. So like uh, family boaters with children is a good example. There's, um, it's an area where you can stay, you can continue to cruise and you can stay quite close to a school or a nursery for a long period of time. Uh, and so like what family boaters can do is they can, during term time, they can cruise around that area. And then during the holidays, they can zoom away and, and do whatever distance they need to do to maintain their cruise, continuous cruising license. Continuous cruising so, is a form of canal living where you move every two weeks. It's what I do. Permanent moorings in London are almost impossible to get, and they often cost almost as much as rent. So when we're talking about restricting continuous cruising, this is undoubtedly the cheaper way of living. And restrictions on continuous cruising affect the poorest parts of the boating community, alongside those who living nomadically has just always been part of their culture. The, the really sad thing about what they're trying to do there is if they remove the, those moorings, this is one of the key areas that enable families to live on boats. And if you remove those moorings, it's not just the fact that you might make their livelihoods too difficult and potentially push them out of their homes because their livelihood becomes unlivable. It's also to do with the other kind of sad part of it is you remove these moorings and you're restricting who can be a continuous cruiser to a certain extent because you're making it very difficult for people who have a family and might be interested in trying out living on a boat to do that because you suddenly make that an unavailable thing to family boaters and I think that's quite sad the idea that you're kind of can make a community potentially 
only suitable for people who don't have children. That's quite sad. And it has other impacts because that area is key, for instance, for various uh, disabled voters, I think. There's a lot of elderly voters who are forced into a position where towpath moorings, that mean they can get on and off without clambering over other people's boats and, and falling in and all those kinds of things, that becomes less likely. It will drive people out of their homes because for a lot of people it will make their livelihoods um, unlivable. Because one of the things that CRT say about this is fine. They say there's loads of other moorings elsewhere. You can just go to these other moorings, like further out of town or wherever it is. And But the thing about continuous cruising is, yes, you are on a journey, um, but, but it's a journey in steps. It's kind of like if you imagine it like a, a ladder with rungs. So every two weeks you move to that, you know, you reach out, you get that next rung. And that's fine, so long as there is a next rung. But if CRT take that away, if they take a rung out so that you can't moor in that area... Yeah, they're right. There are going to be some boaters who perhaps don't have dependents or they're not disabled or whatever, or for whatever reason their livelihoods mean that they can reach up to the next rung up, but there are a lot of people who won't be able to um, because, you know, their lives are already very... their time is already in demand hugely because of family and things like that. I know of a fair few older boaters who, like, you know, to be honest, are, you know, just one step away from being homeless and it's kind of... Basically, they've been able to somehow scrape together enough, or sometimes they've been given a fiberglass boat, uh, and they live on it, and it means that they're not homeless. Um, but quite often, these are people who perhaps society aren't looking after very well, I guess. I mean, I think even if you look at it from a societal perspective rather than an individual one, like any policy that drives people who would otherwise be homeless you know out of their homes or makes a lifestyle that enables them to be self-sufficient unavailable i think you've really got to think long and hard about it they always kind of have this line where they say that their only respons responsibility is as a navigation authority um and that they don't have any responsibility. So like their policy doesn't have to take into account its effect on people who live on boats. The idea that a boat can potentially be a home, that they don't have to take that into account. Um, and I, I, I sort of question that because I think, you know, even if you looked historically, they've inherited from British waterways and British waterways have inherited from a, a, a system that historically has always had people living on it. So to imagine that you've inherited this thing that has always had people living on it and that somehow you have absolutely no responsibility uh, to manage it in a way that doesn't have a really negative impact on the people that live on it, I think it's a, kind of burying your head in the sand a little bit. A lot of these canals are hugely popular, partly because of how popular they are with boaters, because suddenly these sort of dead areas where there used to be no-go spots for I suppose particularly women walking on their own or going for a run or whatever, um, suddenly they're safe places where people can go and they're full of these communities. And um, But it's not just the safety zones, it's also CRT also have started uh, looking at charging for moorings in central London, uh, towpath moorings, which is something they've never done before. Um, and if they do it, 
it's it's a pretty dangerous precedent because you suddenly get to a situation where if they can start charging for towpath moorings in central London, it becomes a situation where central London is only suitable for you know wealthy boaters, which I don't think it's a really reasonable use of what is a public asset to like financially exclude people from it. It's a bit like taking Hyde Park and putting a toll on the front of it before you go through the gate. And then there are all these people who... I think when Colin speaks about the institutional prejudice of the Canal and Rivers Trust, it speaks to a wider picture. The slogan of the National Bargy Travellers Association is Boats Are Homes. And to me, this is what the continued exclusion of continuous cruisers speaks to. A refusal to recognise something that looks different from a house as a home. It shows a continued discrimination of nomadic forms of lifestyle. The idea that those on the move are somehow dodging or trying to escape from taxes or life or insert whatever you'd like to hear is one that's constantly being pounded by the media and our culture. But when I've asked people about what they like about living nomadically, they've often had a similar answer to Colin. I mean, it is like quite an interesting way of living. Um, and I suppose I've never really been much into sounds a bit over the top but like that sort of slightly sort of empire building mentality where people um you know get a mortgage get a house get a bigger house that kind of like i much prefer the idea of you know just kind of passing through sounds a bit cheesy corny maybe but you know and, and you get to do that a lot more um on a boat um it's not like you're trying to, I don't know, dominate a space or something like that, really. You're just trying to, yeah, life is a journey, all that cheesiness. <laughs> I think for me, boats change the context around what home is and what it can be. You're both literally and metaphorically not secure or stable. You become part of the landscape. You adjust to the water levels, to your environment, and your back garden is a whole waterway. But there's another issue at play here. The threat to our waterways doesn't just come from legislation and restriction on who can access the river. It comes from this. England's rivers are filled chemical with a chemical cocktail, cocktail of sewage, sewage agricultural, agricultural waste, waste and plastic. And plastic. That not a single river in England is free from pollution. Releasing into the rivers a mix of rainwater and untreated sewage. That's condoms, sanitary towels, wipes. wipes and human waste. If the government allows this overconsumption of plastic to remain unchecked, we'll see a further decline in all our wild habitats. It's just devoid of, of any, any plant life. From bags to microbeads, packaging to straws. Is that the, the creatures that live in this harbour are being harmed. Trying to just photograph the wildlife normally and, and avoid the plastic, but often it's, it's unavoidable. A shocking and wholesale disregard for the environment. But I began to hear of a boat dweller who'd taken matters into his own hands, not just being part of the landscape, but a guardian of it. Hiya! So, I'm in Ilford today. I've come to Ilford to do a bit of litter picking. A man called Paul, if it takes me getting up half eight on a Sunday in December. It's cold and rainy. I talked to someone about how they're protecting rivers 
in their floating house, then so be it. Yeah, no, I'm excited because he's got... I mean, he's just doing a lot of really practical, really fucking grimy work to protect a river in London that's been neglected for about 200 years. And then he's also doing loads of, like, practical and direct action. He's running a company called Lawyers for Nature's. But let's talk a little bit about Ilford, which is where we are today. Picking with her. It's a pretty roady place. It's quite run down. I'm just walking along and then to my left, I've got a big main road. There's rubbish everywhere. Uh, and there's cigarette butts everywhere. Um, I'm pretty frightened about how much litter there's going to be in this litter pick. We're standing in an industrial estate. An odd group of people of all ages and abilities. We're surrounded by foliage that is unmistakably wild. Strips of greens and browns in a sea of grey. An outbounds Paul. He's dressed in a luminous blue ski suit and armed with a pair of choppers. He springs over the edge of the bridge, mud already across his face. He stands there with steam literally rising off him from the effort of clearing a path. This is a man who takes direct action seriously. We spend the next three hours cleaning an enormous pile of rubbish with 80s classic hits in the background. So what is home like for you at the moment? (laughs) I think the key thing about this project and also how I'm living is the idea of extending home beyond the bounds of like your own house or like small garden fence and seeing the whole river as your home, which is both exhausting and in some ways terrifying but also very fulfilling i think there's a very interesting thing where people's gardens are like over manicured like way too manicured but like people don't really take much care or regard a lot of the time of spaces outside of it Mm. and when you see the whole roading or the whole river and its tributaries as your home then actually yeah you want to take care of it and in some ways it's a great privilege right like yeah, even like, you know, the richest millionaire doesn't really get to have a house in London with their own private like lake or river, but I kind of do, you know, like I get to like, that's that's my back garden is the river, you know, and I can go out and play on it on a rowboat, look after it, change it into or, or, or try and change it into something more beautiful. And that's yeah. a great privilege as well, but also hard, you know, as we saw today. It's not not easy. Paul is perhaps one of the most clear-cut examples of using your home as a way to fight for a fairer and better system. Having a safe cocoon is one thing, but if it's located in a world of turmoil and rubbish, how safe can it really be? What does home count for if it's constantly under threat from your environment? We don't just live in four walls. We live on land, in a country, in the world. But the local community-based action, the stuff that's literally in your back garden, can feel worlds away from a fight in Parliament for systemic change. I had recently seen Paul on Twitter defending Just Stop Oil as they blocked roads and divided opinions. So I asked him why both forms of activism were valuable to him. Well, I think both is actually too restrictive. We need everything. Um, It's like an ecosystem of activism, I suppose. Mm. Um, And different people doing different things. I have immense respect for them you know some of them are in jail right now which is a lot harder than just cleaning up some rubbish you know Um, but I I think cycling between the micro and the macro is I think quite important for activism if you just do the the sort of local on the ground stuff 
actually it's not going to change things sufficiently but if you try and do things just the big picture stuff I think it can become very draining because nothing appears to change or at least not easily mm. you know but today is a good example of that right you know it's very satisfying to remove that litter and feel like you're having a direct impact but also we do need to use what's happening there as an example to get national change because if we don't have a change to the system on packaging and the amount of waste that we're producing then that will just keep happening yeah. you know but equally you know it, it can help to, to to influence that campaigning to do this kind of stuff because you know people sometimes will be like well why are you moaning why don't you go out and do stuff it's like well I fucking have haven't I you know you can't can't <laughs> say can't say I don't try you know and it, it, it gives you a reason a platform to speak to say actually I've gone out there with my bare hands in the fucking mud and sewage to take that out and I don't want to keep doing that mm. you know and it, it gives you a yeah it gives you a, a, a reason to speak I suppose um, and that happens on the river more widely as well you know some of the more esoteric rights of nature stuff and guardianship some people might kind of poo poo it but they kind of it's harder to do that when you know you regularly go out on a winter's day and physically clear the river you know it creates you, you are showing your love and care for the river and that gives you a right to speak on it in other contexts in a sense mm. whereas if you just parachute in and go I know what this river needs without actually like showing your your work for it I think maybe the message doesn't come across as clearly I always have regarded my home as being wider than just my own house mm. as a teenager I used to go around trying to get local buildings listed to save them and like trying to get TPO tree preservationals and local trees and that kind of thing um, I used to go off exploring getting to know an area as well so I would have done this if I had the ability to do it, but I guess you're not really allowed to as a kid, or at least it's not really that possible. <laughs> not really as to do it as an adult either, to be honest, but <laughs> this hasn't stopped me. Um, yeah, it, it does It does form a deeper relationship. And as I said, that's, that's hard sometimes, because then if you love something deeper, it gives a greater capacity to feel pain when it's damaged or hurt, right? Mm. Um, and it's frustrating, I am struggling to deal with the fact that people just keep on throwing in more rubbish and do I just keep coming and cleaning up after them over and over and over again? I sort of wonder where the end point is sometimes. I could feel Paul's frustration. Even though the day had, in many ways, been satisfying, it had also been disgusting. And it's part of a wider battle for him that is largely unsupported by widespread change. Living with the water isn't just about access, although we should all be able to find home and solace in the waterways if we choose. It's about how we look after that home, how we're taking care of the place we live, not just within our four walls. We need widespread change on packaging. Water companies need to stop pumping sewage into our waterways. But getting that change is a mammoth task, and sometimes it feels like an impossible one. But towards the end of the day, something happened a symbol of hope in a plastic clog world. As the last pieces of heavy plastic were lifted out from the bed of the river, the water began to flow again. Clear, moving water. The river was starting to come back to life.
Find us on your favourite streaming platforms, released weekly on Mondays. Follow us on social media at dwelling underscore pod, powered by Transmission Roundhouse.